This is The Guardian. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here for the Full Story Summer Series, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and I'm here with audio producer Joey Watson. Joey, I hear that you've been looking at a story that will teach some people a bit about a side of Australian history that's not well known. Is that right? Yeah. It's the story of Muzaffar Ali, who I spoke to recently in the Guardian Australia studios. Okay. One, two, three. One, two, three. So, Muzaffar was born in Afghanistan. He's Hazara. The Hazaras are one of the four major ethnic groups that make up Afghanistan. And for much of history, they've been persecuted by ancient kings and rulers and in modern times by the Taliban. For centuries, his family has never had a secure home. Yeah, this should be okay. Is it okay? Good? Yeah, Yeah, because I'm drinking tea as well. Of course, In 2013... Muzaffar and his eight family members were forced to flee to try and find a new home and build a new life on the other side of the world. He became Australian. But in order to find out what that meant, to be Australian and to belong in his new home, he had to go on a journey deep into the Australian outback. And there he found the traces of his homeland. And some of them have existed for almost 200 years. Up next how a Hazara refugee found his heritage in the Australian outback. So I will start from introducing me. Um, I'm Muzaffar Ali. Um, I'm from Afghanistan, uh, a Hazara person. So Hazaras are a um, minority. Hazaras are one ethnic group that looks quite different from other ethnic groups. Our tradition and culture is quite different than the other ethnic groups. So when we talk about persecution in Hazara, it is a generational experience. So my great-grandfather experienced this persecution, rule of Abdurrahman, the king. So he killed, brutally killed Hazaras. He wiped out. He didn't want to see Hazaras in Afghanistan. So he killed and he distributed the land to his uh, army, to his people, Pashtuns. In modern times, Taliban killed and massacred Hazaras. So there is a very famous phrase by one of the commanders of Taliban who recently died. Tajiks should go to Tajikistan, Uzbeks should go to Uzbekistan, and Hazaras should go to Goristan. Goristan means graveyard. So we didn't have a land. We don't share any border with any country. So our place for Taliban, that was the graveyard. And they uh, practically did that. When, when they uh, came over, uh, overcame Hazara fighters during 1998 to 2001. So these different massacres happened in different places during three years of time. They killed. So I know that in the 1980s, when you were born, the Soviet Union uh, occupied Afghanistan. But after their exit in, in 89, the Taliban became more and more powerful. What did that mean for your childhood? Uh, my father went to Pakistan 
1986 when I was born, just born in Afghanistan, and then they migrated to Pakistan. So I grew up in Pakistan. Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. We are joined in this operation by our staunch friend, Great Britain. Other close friends, including Canada, Australia, Germany, and France have pledged forces as the operation unfolds. 9-11 happened and uh, international forces invaded Afghanistan. So democratic government came because they were persecuted generationally. In Afghanistan, Hazaras really helped USA and international forces to have their foot in Afghanistan because they brought peace and stability for us. There was a hope for us and for me too. I came to uh, Afghanistan. So because I could speak English, I got a job in the UN. I was studying uh, um, Taliban, politics, security and peace. I got my first camera with my first salary when I was working in Afghanistan. The motivation to buy a camera was to preserve the beauty of my uh, country and the beauty of people, actually. I kept working and taking pictures and sharing. Those days we had a MySpace. Uh, we didn't have Facebook. So I was taking these pictures using MySpace and sharing them. So I kept taking those pictures and um, I didn't know one day these pictures will become valuable. Uh, because uh, now we have lost Afghanistan. Unfortunately, when the US invaded Iraq in 2004, that triggered a rebirth of Taliban. I think it was just one week that I joined UN, Taliban attacked our car in Maidan Wardak province. So they hit our car with a landmine, and that was the first ever landmine attack against any UN car. And uh, it's such a luck, pure luck, uh, we survived in that. And that was a, a, an awakening like uh, a thing for me to realize, okay, it's not a wonder world. War is still a reality for us. So at the beginning of the war, the international coalition had been very successful in keeping the Taliban at bay. A democratic government was set up. Some women began receiving an education. Ethnic minorities were protected, but it, it didn't last. How did things change for you as a Hazara UN employee as the war dragged on? So in seven years, things dramatically changed. So now Taliban were more visible more accepted by the Pashtun people where they were operating mostly. I was getting like a lot of threats from the commanders. Um, they were tracking me, they were tapping my call. Um, I couldn't even travel from one city to another city with my ID card. And when I was using social media, so I was just got scared in Kabul one day, someone totally stranger said, hey, Muzaffar, how are you? I was just thinking, do I know you? He said, no, I see your pictures. So in 2011 and 10, that was the time when I was receiving this kind of attention. So in a Western world, that's a good thing. You know, you have become famous. 
But in Afghanistan, there's not a good thing. You have to be careful because people know you now. And people could be Taliban. So they could be criminals or commanders. So that was very alarming for me. Uh, in 2012, um, my car was stopped again by the Taliban, nearly the same place where my car was hit by landmine. I was sitting in a Toyota Corolla car. On my right side, my wife, and on my lap, my two years old daughter was sleeping. My wife was sitting beside me, and there were other passengers, two passengers and a driver. And this short guy with Kalashnikov, he stopped my car and said, where are you going? Like, like it's really hot from five people. He points to you, where are you going? When I turned my face to my wife on my right side, she was crying and trembling, shivering. And if I do the same, they will stop me. They will take me down from the car, Taliban because I am something like, that's what I learned in the UN. We got trainings how to do in that kind of situations. On this spot, I took a decision, if I stay alive in this incident, I'm not gonna live in Afghanistan. What if the Taliban takes me because I work for the UN and kill me? Who's going to take care of these two girls, these two women, my, my daughter and my wife, and then my mother and my sister? I lied to that young Taliban. I said, my daughter is sick, I'm going to the doctor. So he didn't ask further questions and let me go. But then we arrived in Kabul uh, the same day, and the same day we decided to leave Kabul. I just called my supervisors. I said, I'm enough, I'm finished. So I think that was 27th of December when I left Afghanistan, 2012. How did you get out of Afghanistan? Where did you go? Um, I, I, I hid this, my hard drive, where I had 13,000 pictures from Afghanistan and um, put this, hide this in a sleeping bag and came to Pakistan. So we left nothing in Afghanistan. We came to Pakistan. Then we sold everything. We came to Indonesia. The time when I came out of Jakarta airport, I had just $200 left in my pocket. So it means like, okay, we have to stay in Indonesia. When I came um, to Indonesia, it was not just me, it was all my family. Because when I left Afghanistan, I took all my everything, my, my mother, my family, because it's not safe for me, it's not safe for them. I love my country, Afghanistan. That's where I was born. That's where my ancestors were killed, actually. That's where they were sacrificed. <laughs> I would never forget that part of my life. I got my, my belonging. As far as this government is concerned, uh, our borders are always going to be secure. As far as this government is concerned, the way is closed. Many refugees stranded in Indonesia had risked their lives getting to Australia by boat, but after 2013, you would have been turned back. How did you become Australian? So Australia accepts 13,000 refugees from uh, outside Australia through humanitarian program. So we were one of them. So all of my eight family members came to Australia. We got humanitarian visa by the, from the government. We were like, okay, 
the government said, okay, you are eligible. You can come and live here. You can call Australia home. And that was the first time we thought we live somewhere permanently. So in my whole life, we never had a home. We never had a permanent place to live for five generations. And Australia was the first place we could say, okay, we are living here. And okay, we had this terrible past. When I came to Australia, you know, this is a new phase of my journey, new phase of my life. And it's quite unique because I call it home now. And when we call it home, then we explore more uh, deeper. It's not just going to work and then earn some money to spend it. It's like, okay, how I, I belong here in Australia. Can I be Hazara here? Can I be Muslim here? Can I be from Afghanistan in Australia? Can I be Aussie? And what is this identity for my kids, for my daughters? That's where uh, this whole journey started. Up next, Muzaffar searches for the traces of Afghanistan in some of the most remote parts of Australia. Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks. So, Mozafa, soon after you arrived, you turned to history. What did you discover about Australia's Afghan past? People of Afghanistan has a long history in Australia. The first recorded Afghan came in 1860. 1860, and uh, they came with their camels. And uh, they were invited by the government to explore the deserts because that time there was no transport to go there. No rail, no road, there was no cars, obviously. So horses could not explore. Horses could not go in the desert in, uh, in long journeys. So camels were the best animal to, to explore. And, and Afghans had good cameliers, very tough. And then 80 years after the first fleet, we have Afghans here. That's where it took me to the deserts to see uh, what, what is the Australia's modern history. So thousands of Afghan men arrived in Australia and 
These camel trains became fundamental to Australia's rural economy in the early days of the colony. They, they even accompanied venerated explorers like Burke and Wills on their expeditions. And in some outback towns, you can still find the remains of mosques poking through the red sand. Okay, I will take my shoes off. That's how we do when we go into the mosque. These two pillars we have right in the middle. And we have this line. And here, maybe this was the place where Imam stood to lead the prayer. How did you go about trying to track down the descendants of the Afghan cameleers? When I see their contribution, that was immense. So that took me to uh, learn more from those cameleers and their descendants, like how they kept their identity as Afghan. So I got some telephone numbers and I knew some names and I learned more through books and the work that the cameleers did and we planned to go and we planned where we can go. So that was the start of our journey, that that connection and saying hi to each other and then introducing each other from having links with Afghanistan. Uh, did you say your father used to do this? Grandfather. Grandfather, sorry. My dad when he was alone. Yes. Oh, he was alone. Our first stop was Port Augusta. We met uh, Lal Zada, who is the third generation of uh, Camellia descendant. We talked all about the past. What was Lal's experience when his grandfather was alive? Uh, do you know what? <laughs> did he say something? Yeah, he said something. You, I, I don't know. You could have. Kadaya, Kadaya, something. He said like ah, okay. He talked to me how his grandfather uh, slaughtered or killed a chicken, how uh, was he praying, um, how he was uh, giving wash to a dead body in a Muslim way, how he buried that dead body. So that was really fascinating for me to learn, like, okay, the, this history could be transferred to the third generation. But it was interesting to see it could not be transferred to the fourth, to the next generations or the fifth generation. Brother Thank Mustafa. You. Thank, Lal. You. Thank you very much for your hospitality. Oh, no, 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 you are an amazing yeah. man. You're welcome. Yeah. You are an amazing man. So I, I really enjoyed Bahari your company. I wish I was there with, with the chooks. <laughs> they were all like uh, uh, Aboriginals now. They are more connected with their Aboriginal roots. Uh, and they're very proud. So they were Indigenous and Afghani, a, a dual heritage that interestingly is really quite common in the outback. What's the story behind these communities of Afghani Indigenous Australians? Uh, the, the friendship came for on multiple uh, layers. So when I was in Marie, um, there is a railway line, uh, old railway line. There is no rail uh, transport anymore. But the, that old railway line is the line of division. One side of the road uh, is a beautifully built town, town halls and all those beautiful buildings, hotel. 
uh, where Europeans lived and the other side of the railway line, camelians lived with their camels and they, they were living in tents, literally, in sheds. Uh, and the other side of the town, just away in the uh, near this Camellier's uh, settlement or population or uh, place, there were Aboriginal mob living. And they were all Camellier's and Aboriginal people were living on the fringes of this main society during colonial Australia. Camellier's were not allowed to bring their women, their wife or family to Australia. So they had to live here for three years or some of them had to live for the rest of their life. So they had to get married. And uh, because they were living side by side, they were living in fringes. They were not, they, they were not full citizens, not full human being in those days. So that was a natural connection between Afghans and the Aboriginals. So that's why a lot of uh, marriages took place that time when Afghans married these Aboriginal women. Uh, and Aboriginals did that as well because of the stolen generation as well. Because if they marry a white man, so half-caste will be taken away from them. So marrying uh, an Afghan would mean that there is no half-caste. So that will save their, their uh, kids, actually. That gave me the um, idea of Australia's dark past. After 1788, what happened to the Aboriginal people, actually, the real honor of, of this, this land, actually. Um, and we have this connection with them, with the Aboriginal people, connection in a way that we were persecuted, our land was taken. So we shared those pains, actually, as Hazara. Can you tell me about the Australasian Camel Cup? in the desert town of Mari. I went to One Camel Cup this year uh, with all my family uh, and it was such a beautiful experience to see this uh, very townish kind of celebration that Camel Cup, camels, horse, donkey, dogs and everything is, is, is uh, there is a race of everything. The Cameliers descendants come for the Camel Cup because that's iconic date. They come, they watch this race because camel and cameliers, they're very connected. The descendants are very connected with that. So they come and see this, uh, this race and then they have their dinner the next day. So they cook curry, they make chapatis or bread the way their uh, uh, great-grandfathers used to cook and they give it as a charity. They eat together and they put some money for the next year and it's such a beautiful thing because we do those kind of events quite often in our culture. Uh, we share food, we sit together, we pray. They do the same in a different way. They drink beer. <laughs> yeah. When you introduce yourself to a, a, a familiar descendant that I'm also from Afghanistan, that is something beautiful. I found my Watandar, my countrymen, here in Australia, <laughs> those who are living here for five generations. But um, I think that is the power of this identity, power of culture that, that the, those people brought with them and then transferred to the next generations. And still that persists. Muzaffar, Death rituals are a really important part of tradition and culture. 
What did you discover in the cemeteries of the towns you visited? So I went to these graveyards in Broken Hill, Adelaide, Port Augusta, and Murray. Um, the graveyard is an interesting place where these real cameliers, they died there actually. Um, process of dying is very important. So when someone dies, um, the ideal scenario is that his his relatives and family come on his grave and pray. He's not left alone. Uh, but someone died in, in a remote ghost towns uh, where no one lives, but you see four graves of uh, the Afghan cameliers. That is the worst case scenario for someone to die. I was, uh, what I was doing, I was taking pictures of each grave from different angles because some of the graves are uh, in very uh, bad condition because they are unknown graves. No one knows who is theirs. And some of them are just flat. You can just see the marks. This could be a grave. So I was taking pictures of these graves just to preserve these graves, you know? I, I could see for records. You know, these are the graves in Marie or Port Augusta or in Adelaide. So I was just doing that uh, that time. And I always pray on those graves. I pray because I can, I can recite those verses, those prayers. And then I was in Marie, I saw one. Yeah, I was just sitting and a Camilleer descendant came to this Afghan section uh, and uh, they put grains into these cups, uh, which is placed right near the grave. So they put grains in it and they sit for a while and they brought their young child over there. So once they finished, I went to them and said, why did you put these grains uh, and what did you put? He said, oh, they're uh, rice actually. We put rice and we throw rice on the grave. I said, why did you do that? He said, we learned this from our forefathers, actually. And I'm transferring this to my daughter, actually, who is here. And I want to show her that we do this. We should keep practicing this, this tradition. Uh, the idea behind this is that when birds come and eat these grains, so the blessings goes to the dead body, the person who is lying underneath. He... Uh, he didn't know it's a Muslim tradition, but he knows that it's a cultural thing. It, came, it was transferred or it was told by his great-grandfather to his grandfather, to his father and to him. Uh, and that tradition is so, such a beautiful tradition of uh, care, you know, a remembrance. Uh, and that was being transferred to the next generation. That was such a beautiful gesture to see that, yes, I'm ready to die in Australia. My daughter will come on my grave and with his children or her children, I, I will not be forgotten. Uh, this identity will be there. This cultural practice can be preserved. Uh, we lost everything, man. Um, and that's where like this notion of identity, this journey is more important because we cannot go back to Afghanistan. We can never think to go back to Afghanistan and live, but we are living in Australia. Yeah, we cannot live alone. We need migrants, we need people, we need connections, relationship to survive in the world. It's not just us, it's not just white, it's not just exclusivity. It's a 
it's a shared world, it's a shared country, it's a shared survival. That was Muzaffar Ali. Thanks so much for his time. If you want to hear more about Muzaffar's journey to find connections with Camelier descendants, he's actually working on a doco about this as we speak. The project has a website, watanda.com.au. That's W-A-T-A-N-D-A-R. This episode was produced by Joey Watson, who also did the sound design, mixing by Camilla Hannon. The supervising producer for the summer series is Ellen Lee Beater. The executive producer of this episode is Molly Glassie. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, and thanks for listening.